Well, hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Stone Table. My name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors on staff at Baylife. And over the last couple months, we've released a handful of episodes of this show. But you'll notice in the coming episodes that things are going to look a little bit different. I'm going to be joined by my fiance in future episodes, Mickey, and am just really excited for how this show is going to look. One of the things that's been really beneficial to me in my Christian life is not just reading or listening to sermons, but having conversations with people. That's how I've grown so much in just my understanding of the gospel and theology. And one of the great things about this sort of podcast format and the way that we're going to do things going forward is that we're going to just sit down and have conversations with people and let you all listen into those conversations and just sort of hear some of the great things that we get to know in talking with Christians across the spectrum. So those are some things I'm excited about. But Mickey, what about you? What are some things you're looking forward to with the show? Yeah, so I am looking forward to getting to have those conversations with authors, with theologians and founders of organizations worldwide and how their experiences have shaped the work that they do now. Um, And also with me coming from a bit of a multicultural background, one of the things that fascinates me the most are discussions that revolve around what it looks like to follow Jesus and living a gospel-centered life in different cultures and circumstances. And we're absolutely going to get the chance to do that here on this first episode because we're talking with our friend Celestin, who is from Rwanda. And this is actually going to be a two-part episode because there was so much to this conversation, we didn't feel like one could do it justice. And so in this first part of our two-part conversation with Celestin, we're going to hear just a little bit about his background and his experiences in the Rwandan genocide. And one of the things that I love about this part of the conversation is really just the story of how he became a Christian because it it is so providential just to see the Lord's hand in those experiences. Was there, was there anything that stood out to you? I I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, were there specific things in talking with Celestin? Yeah, there were so many valuable things in our conversation with Celestin and getting to hear about how his firsthand experience in the Rwandan genocide really shaped his life and his ministry and his approach to theology um, was incredible. And so this conversation is a really good one. And I'm so looking forward forward to sharing it with the rest of the world. So as we get going, this is the Stone Table. Thank you for being here to sit down with us for this podcast. We are so happy to have you. And you spent this morning sharing with our church a little bit about your ministry, Alarm. But I realize there'll be a lot of people listening to this from our church who've just heard about you and Alarm from your talk this morning. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Travis. Uh, My name is Celestin. People say Celestine, but I'm French. Uh, so it's Celestin Musekura. I'm uh, from Rwanda. I was born and raised up in Rwanda. I have uh, a wife. My wife is Bernadette. We have four children. We live in Dallas, Texas, but we spend most of our time in East and Central Africa where we serve with Alarm. So uh, that's who I am. Well, so tell us a little bit about growing up in Rwanda and how, how did you become a Christian? 
Oh, that will take two days. <laughs> yeah, um, growing up in Rwanda, I would really uh, summarize what could be a long story, but um, I was born in a family that did not know Christ. I was the first Christian in my family. I grew up in a family that worshipped the ancestors, uh, the spirit of the dead, that's uh, animism. And uh, I did not know uh, or even hear about the gospel until when I was uh, about uh, 14 years old. And so my upbringing, I grew up uh, uh, making uh, sacrifices to the spirit of the dead because uh, my mother had no children for nine years and she was told the reason why she could not have children is because she was a caste woman. And if they believed that the caste to be taken away, she had to offer blood of animals and blood of chickens, blood of goats. So nine years later, when I was born, she was convinced that uh, it is the ancestors who gave her a son. So from uh, the day I was born, I was um, dedicated to be a traditional priest. So really, I grew up by the time I was five, six, uh, seven, I'd been coached on how to worship the ancestors. In fact, when I was seven, eight, I knew how to slaughter goat, a chicken, take the blood of animals and uh, offer to the spirit of the dead because they believed they would protect us. They believed that uh, the only way we can live is when the ancestors are happy with us because they believe the ancestors can speak to the ancestors on our behalf. And uh, I mean, the ancestors can speak to God on our behalf. So really the ancestors were mediators between the living and the supreme being. And so that really was my upbringing. So how did I hear about the gospel? Uh, it was um, really, I was about 14 years old when for the first time in my village in the rural area of Rwanda, in the western part of Rwanda, for the first time I saw a white man. In fact, uh, we thought he was either one of the ancestors from the graves or one of the animals from the bush. Oh, wow. And <laughs> <laughs> he was an American missionary, so we'd go and put his hair and... Uh, pinch him and scratch him and <laughs> rub the, sh the finger to see if the white stuff will come off. And then he told us about God who loved the world and who gave his son to die and who shed his blood for our sins. So because I had already for, I mean, for the last seven years of my 14 years, I have been shedding blood of animals. But when I heard the gospel the first time, it made sense that Jesus Unlike my ancestors, he was not asking an, uh, blood of animals every week, but he gave his own blood. And, uh, and so really that's what brought me and I turned him to the gospel. And after I asked more questions, then I realized that this Jesus is the best ancestor I can follow. And he's not just the ancestor, he's the savior. So if I gave my life to him, then I would speak to God directly and Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my brother, and then I become the son of God. So really that's how I gave my life to Christ, not the time I met him, but three years later. So mm. I had turned 17 years old when I gave my life to Christ and that began my journey and that was a long time ago. <laughs> and so that's really how I got to hear the gospel for the first time and that's why I gave my life to Christ. Now, when I gave my life to Christ at the, end of seven, at the age of 17, I had just finished my first year of high school. So wow. <laughs> 17 wow. years old. And so because we didn't have school, we school is expensive, right. parents could not afford money, and therefore sometimes we went to school when your parents could afford money. And so at the end of my first year of high school, my father 
my mother, my relatives, they heard that I gave my life to Christ. They sent a delegation to tell me never to come back home again. Mm. So really I became a, a city boy. I ate actually from the garbage, I ate from the trash, because they believed if I went back home, my, the ancestors would kill my brothers and my sister and my parents. So my Christian life began as a homeless child, as a homeless youth. I didn't have anywhere to go. So so we understand that you served in pastoral ministry. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you came to know that God wanted you to serve in ministry. And was it something you always knew or is it something that you discovered? Uh, that's a good a good question. It's really uh, something that I, I never, I didn't even have an idea of what the calling was. So when I finished the first year for high school, really, um, and my family disowned me by God's grace through another, again, God's intervention, uh, through the missionary who wrote a letter to his supporters in the U.S. about this um, skinny, uh, ugly boy who needs help uh, to go to school. A lady who was 69 years old in Cleveland, Ohio, she didn't have money. She prayed that somebody in the church would have money or would send money to this boy. She did not hear anything for three months. So for six years, she collected the cardboard and trash can. She recycled them. Then at the end of the month, for six years, she would send money to Rwanda, to the mission for the skinny ugly boy to go to school. Now, when I was finishing the high school, that's when I felt I need to go to tell my mother about Jesus because my mother had named me Celestine Musekura. Now, in my mother tongue, Musekura means somebody who saves you. Hmm. Somebody who saves you from a bad situation. Remember, my mom, for nine years, she had no children. She was an outcast. She could not sit with other women. And so she believed there was a curse on her. That's why she could not have a child. So when I was born, I saved her because from that moment she was accepted by the hmm. community because the curse had been removed. So my calling actually was, I didn't know the calling to go into ministry. I thought I want to go tell my mom about the real savior, Jesus Christ, not me, Musekura, but Jesus Christ. So I discussed with the missionary, that's when the missionary said, maybe God is calling you into ministry. I say, whatever, I don't know. So I then was sent to Bible Institute in the Congo. And so 1983, I finished the Bible school in the Congo. I came back to Rwanda. I was asked to be a pastor in my village. And in fact, this was about seven years. I had no relation with my family. So I began to preach the gospel. I became a pastor in my village. And before the first year of my pastoral ministry, I led my mom to Christ. Wow. I introduced her to Jesus. And then I said, I led my brother to Christ. He's a pastor, a better preacher than I am, actually. <laughs> and then I led my father to Christ and then my sister to Christ. Many people in my village came to Christ because most of them actually were surprised that I was alive. And so by me being alive, I began to tell them that the spirits of the ancestors are not stronger than Jesus because they told the ancestors would kill him. So really, I had no clue but through the uh, events of my life, through my upbringing, God used the uh, traditional belief in the ancestors' worship to then knowing God that Jesus died and, and, and gave his life for me to realize that my people are worshiping the ancestors, then to go back and tell them about Christ. That's when I realized that God was calling me, not just telling my mom, but the whole village, by the whole community. So I ended up in the pastoral ministry for uh, over five years, uh, both doing pastoral ministry and church administration. Wow. 
Wow. Praise God. It's amazing. Yeah. So my understanding is that you were pastoring in Rwanda during the time of the genocide? Uh, I was actually at the seminary. I had just left the pastoral ministry. I had gone to Kenya for more studies. I was doing my Master of Divinity in Mm. Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. So for for our listeners who have maybe just heard a little bit about Mm. what happened in Rwanda, you in many ways lived through that, and that's a central part of your story and the way that God yeah. worked in your life and, and gave you a vision for the ministry that you lead now. So yeah. can you share for those who don't know a little bit about what happened in Rwanda in the 90s? Mm, thank you, um, Travis. And so Rwanda uh, was colonized by the Belgians, but for many years, um, the two major tribes that lived in Rwanda, uh, Hutus and Tutsis, Tutsis the minority of the two, they were put in power by the colonial Belgians, and uh, together with the colonialists, they oppressed the Hutus. Mm. And then they developed this kind of hatred between the two tribes. And uh, for many years, over um, centuries, maybe two, over 200 years, uh, the Hutus were kind of oppressed. Mm. And uh, in the mid-90s, uh, 19, uh, in 1950s, uh, 55, many countries in Africa began to fight against the colonial powers to be independent. Mm. And so because of many years now the, in Rwanda, the Hutus revolted against the Belgians and the Tutsis. And so the Hutus took over in 19, uh, uh, through the revolution 1959, then 62, Rwanda got independence, so the Hutus ruled. Unfortunately, when the Hutus began to rule, they just did oppress the Tutsis like the Tutsi had oppressed them before. And so for these years of hatred had developed this division between the Hutus and Tutsis. And so in 1959, during the revolution, many Tutsis left the country, fled into countries around Rwanda, many in Uganda, Congo, Burundi, and in Europe. Now, October 1st, 1990, those children who had now become mature, they took the arms, they, from Uganda, they attacked Rwanda, they began the fight. Mm. So October 1st, 1990, a civil war began in Rwanda, which was again, uh, Hutu government, again, the Tutsi rebels, uh, who uh, were fighting, the Tutsis had the right fight to come back to their home country. For the next four years, there were more people killed in Rwanda. There were uh, about 1.5 million people displaced. And so they began a negotiation between the rebels, Tutsis, and the Hutu government. And it was during that uh, negotiations when uh, the president of, um, of the Hutu president who was uh, ruling that time was coming from with the plane from Tanzania when the plane was shot down. Mm. Now the blame of the Hutus when the Tutsis and that's what started what we call the genocide. Between the plane was shot down on April 6, 1994, that began the 100 days of massacres. So more Tutsis were massacred. There were about 1 million people killed within 100 days, majority of them Tutsis and uh, moderate Hutus who would not want to join Hutus to kill their neighbors. They were also being killed because they were not true Hutus. 
And so that's really what happened. The genocide that happened in 1994, it was in the process. It was because four years before the genocide, there were hatred and, and politicians uh, sowing hatred in the hearts of the people, even people in the, in the church hating their neighbors. And so when the plane was shot down, it became like a, a catalytic event that created a fear that neighbors killed their neighbors. And uh, that was the terrible thing that we call genocide in 1994. That is something that I'm sure the people listening to this maybe heard some details of, but but the reality of, of that, I mean, you can tell even in the fact that you know the dates when everything happened, yeah. it, it had, I'm sure, such a significant impact in your own life. you affected mm. by the genocide that took place? I lost a member of my family, my church members, uh, colleagues, died either during the genocide or died in the refugee camps because of the, uh, you know, dysentery, cholera, and typhoid. More people were dying in the refugee camps. But um, the genocide effect um, touched my family immediately. Uh, three years after this happened. So in uh, uh, 1997, December, uh, more people had become, had turned back home. Uh, more people had been uh, returning to their countries. My community, my village uh, people, uh, some had fled, others had not fled. But uh, during the time of, you know, 95, 96, 97, 98, the government of Rwanda, now the Tutsi, they took over from the Hutus because the Hutu government was defeated by the Tutsi. So when the Tutsi took over, they continued to fight with the militia Hutus who had fled in Congo. And because my village is in not far from the border of Congo and Rwanda, during this fighting between the rebels, now the militia and the new government of Tutsis, uh, people in my village were massacred. So in December 1997, in my village, within less than 12 minutes, 70 people were murdered, including five members of my family. And so this became the really the, the very close, very personal, when my family, members of my congregation, members of my own family were murdered by members of my, the community, the neighbors with the people in the uniform who came and massacred people. So really affected uh, the, the whole war and the, the killing, the genocide of the Tutsis, because my family, actually, I'm married to a wife whose um, parents are mixed. And so really I had uh, relatives from my ma and my wife's side who are Tutsis and Hutus. And so we lost people during the genocide. We lost people in the refugee camps. We lost people in the revenge that followed the genocide. That's how really this became so personal. So with your personal experience with mm. the genocide, how would you say that your experience in this shaped your faith? And what questions did you find yourself asking? And what were some of the questions the people in your church asked in, um, in the face of this genocide? Uh, thank you. I believe uh, the genocide and the response to the genocide the church, I would say, the church in general failed. Mm. That's why the, the first realization, the church failed 
in Rwanda because um, the people uh, in the church, including the pastors and the priests, many of them were involved uh, directly or indirectly in supporting by you know actions or by being quiet. You know, uh, we we say that um, uh, we uh, respond to this kind of situation uh, by what we say and by what we don't say. There are Christians uh, who failed by not saying anything. So, you know, when you don't say anything, you are actually saying something. Mm-hmm. When you don't say something, you are saying, according to what you are doing. So if the neighbors are king neighbors and you say nothing to stop, you are supporting what's going on. Mm-hmm. Then w- there are those who try to say something, but what they said was not biblical. It was tribal, where the statement they made were, were more tribal than biblical. So the church in one in general fared because the church failed to become prophetic, either to talk about the evil of hate. Uh, they did not reprimand the politicians who were uh, calling people to kill. Uh, the evil of uh, exclusion, the evil of demonizing the people because speeches were being done. Radios were giving hate messages and hate speeches. Radios were talking about killing, but most of the churches were quiet. The questions now that were asked by the common man uh, was, is God just? Mm. Because the majority of the people in the pews were innocent and discipled. Most of them, they were not even, they, they didn't know the members uh, of their, you know, who is rep- their government representative. They are innocent. They were, they were farmers who had no clue about politics, but they were being killed just because they belonged to a tribe. And so the question was, is God just? And the other question was, uh, if God is just, where is he when my wife, my children are being massacred? The other question was, is God uh, um, capable of saving us? Why does he do anything? In fact, more questions were asked by uh, unbelievers. Why am I surviving when this of my family was murdered? What does God want out of me? And so there were questions that people were asking, but then the Christians were asking questions, where was God when my family was being murdered? Now, the theological questions for me was uh, maybe more troubling was when some of the pastors who lost their family members, pastors who were dealing with the anger and the shame and and the bitterness because they could not save their families, pastors who were preaching on Sunday like today, and then the militia or the rebels came and picked the people from the pews and they killed them in the parking lot. And those pastors would say, why didn't I save them? Why didn't I die with them? And other pastors had gone to do ministry, to preach or to evangelize, door to door to visit a member of their congregation to come home to find their wife and the children chopped into pieces. So those pastors were having theological questions, like, as I said, justice. Others were saying, now, I know somebody killed my wife and four children. Can I go kill them and then forgive them after? Others were saying, are we being punished because we abandoned our ancestors? Is it because we follow the white man's God? Are we in the, in the punishment? And others were saying, are we in the great tribulation? Is this the great tribulation? Is this happening all over the world? And, but also there were psychological questions. People were traumatized by what they saw. And it was not only the killing, was, uh, there were terrible things done, the, the rape, innocent people's children, their parents murdered in their presence. And so the questions, can we live again? And in fact, one of the questions that uh, 
uh, God asked me, and I was asking myself, is the Ezekiel question, can these bones live again? Mm. Will these bones live? Because they were bones of the unburied, uh, killed people inside Rwanda, a whole nation full of one million skeletons. You have more skeletons in refugee camps everywhere. Really the question for me, which was more troubling, can this bone live? Mm. So they were born, they were literally dead people. Was there any hope for Rwanda? And the other question was, what can the church be during this time? And that is really the question that, how have we failed? Can the church be an instrument of hope again where we have failed? So really those are the, the questions that were uh, troubling us and the question that really formed our, uh, uh, maybe changed our Western American theology because we are dealing now with communal sins. Mm-hmm. We are longer dealing with individual sins because the theology we have been taught was to deal with forgiveness on individual sin. Mm-hmm. But now this is a communal sin. This is a communal atrocities against another community. So how does our Western theology, which is individualistic, deal with this African community uh, out uh, perspective? That was, for me, the biggest theological question that I had to deal with, which brought me, let alone, to that seminar to do more research. for listening to the first half of our interview with our friend Celestin. Be sure to tune in next time as we talk about how his experiences shaped his theology, his ministry with Alarm, and how you can help with their work in Africa. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and subscribe. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table. You got dinner with Mark and Eleanor last night. Yes. And he kept the dog at the table. Uh, yeah. He yeah, told us. I said, no, this in America, this is a relative, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, he did it today. Yeah, he had the dog at the table. Like and, a baby. Uh, yeah, I know. I was talking. This is a family member, you know. Yes. <laughs> in America, in Africa, no. Out. <laughs> no, no dogs at the table? No. We wouldn't let dogs at our table either. No. Do you like dogs or do you like? Like in cats? America, I, I don't like, I like them when they are protecting me, not they are, okay. when they are inside. That's fair. Yeah. And, you know, in heaven, they would be outside, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amen. I didn't tell Mark that. Yeah. I, I needed my food, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes.